0: Now we have these witnesses. I don't take these witnesses literally either. Who are these witnesses? The two views that this is Elijah and Moses that come back. Some people believe that it's Elijah and Enoch because Enoch and Elijah supposedly did not die. And therefore they're like, okay, that makes sense they come back. But the fact that many people believe that this is Moses and Elijah is because they perform the miracles of the water to blood, Moses, and stopping the rain, Elijah. These were two miracles that stood out big time as referring to Moses and Elijah throughout their ministry. And Moses kind of begins the prophets, and Elijah brings an end to the prophets. Now, yes, there were many prophets after Elijah, and they all wrote books, but Elijah brought an end to Israel in the promised land under the blessing of God. So Moses kind of was bringing them into the promised land, and then Elijah, when he died, The prophets that came after him were saying, you're going to be taken out of the promised land. Moses and Melijah represent the bookends of living in the promised land with the blessings of God. And this is why those two prophets stood next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because Moses began the promised land blessings and failed because he disobeyed God and was kicked out of the promised land. And he did not do what the Messiah was supposed to do. And Elijah ends living in the Promised Land with the blessings of God. And he failed too because God gave him three commands at the end of his life and he disobeyed a direct command of God and did not do the first two. He completely disobeyed God and said, Nope, not doing that. Nope, not doing that. And so God kicked him out of the land just like Moses when he crossed the Jordan River and then took him off the face of the earth as a judgment. Okay? And, so, and that's very clear. Being outside the land is bad all the time in the Bible. Moving eastward is bad all the time in the Bible. A whirlwind coming to get you is bad all the time in the Bible. You can, I, can challenge, I will challenge you. You cannot find one place in the entire First Testament where moving eastward is good, being outside the land is good, and a whirlwind coming to get you is good. Okay? It's never good. So he was under judgment. Now, where did he go? I have no idea. And I don't really care because it's all done and over with. But they represent the bookends. And so that's why they talked about Jesus' exodus, because Moses had an exodus, Elijah had an exodus, except nobody went with him, if you read Actual the Kings. He goes out of the Promised Land all by himself. And they both failed to deliver Israel. And now Jesus stands in the middle, and they talk about Jesus' exodus leaving the physical realm through death, and he will not fail. He will not fail. And he's the one that they were looking forward to. Many people believe this because one of the miracles that they perform. Two, because Deuteronomy 18 says that God will bring a prophet like Moses one day. And Malachi chapter 3 says that God will bring Elijah back one day. So they say, well, there you go. They're back. The question is, how do you know the mountain Transfiguration wasn't their back? That's what they view. There's problems with this. one. It does not clearly distinguish that one does this miracle and the other does this miracle. It says that they have the power to turn the water to blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague when they want and when they have complete, uh, completed testimony. And then to stop the rain. It doesn't say that one does this and the other one does that. So it just merges them together. Now that's kind of a weak argument, and I admit that. But the other problem with this is it never ever says that Moses is coming back. It says that a prophet like Moses will return in Deuteronomy 18. The prophets that come after Deuteronomy and Psalms make it very clear that that prophet that's like Moses is Jesus. It makes it very clear it's the Messiah. When you go through the Psalms and you go through the prophets, it says that the prophet like Moses is Jesus. Not Moses coming back. Deuteronomy doesn't say Moses is coming back. And the prophets make it very clear that the prophet is not Moses. It's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus makes it clear that he is that prophet in his ministry. The other thing is that Elijah is not necessarily coming back. Because it says Elijah will come. But Jesus makes it very clear that John the baptizer was the coming of Elijah. He makes it very clear. He says, are you looking for Elijah? John is the coming. Because they're like, oh, is John the coming of Elijah? or Are you the coming of Elijah, Jesus? And Jesus says, Elijah is John is the coming of Elijah, and he came in the spirit of Elijah's ministry. He sounded like Elijah, he acted like Elijah, and he damned them all to hell like Elijah, so to speak. And so that, is already been, so that means that the prophets have made it clear that Jesus is the prophet of Jerome 18, and Jesus makes it clear that Elijah is not coming back. And we already saw them in the transfiguration. So there's a problem there with that. And what purpose does that serve? You would think if they are truly coming back that God would name them by name. Here's the thing. This is what I strongly believe. I believe that Revelation chapter 11 tells you exactly who they are. It tells you their name or their, what, who they are. It says these are my two olive trees, my two lampstands. That's who they are. The only time that anybody has ever been referred to as an olive tree is in Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, God gives a vision to Zechariah of end time things. And he gives him a vision of two olive trees that are tapped into one lampstand. And that these olive trees are feeding the oil to the lampstand. And the lampstand, we've already talked about this, represents the witness of Israel. Israel was one lampstand, and it represented the light of God to the world. And God says in Zechariah 2, Zechariah 4, that there's two olive trees feeding the lampstand. And everybody knows that that's Israel. Everybody knows that. And then later in the chapter, he tells you specifically who they are. He says the first olive tree is Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, the king of Israel, who actually would function as a governor because Persia wouldn't let them have a king. But he is a king in name. And the second olive tree is Joshua, the high priest, the descendant of Aaron. So the one olive tree represents the king. in the line of Judah, and the other olive tree represents the priest in the line of Aaron. And they are feeding, guiding, leading the people of Israel. Then, later on when you read, it tells you that Joshua was to take the crown of Zerubbabel and place it on his head. So the priest of God was to wear the king's crown. And said, and now you have to understand, the Mosaic law says that's forbidden. No one is allowed to be king and priest simultaneously. That's way too much power for one man. It's forbidden under the law, it's punishable by death. When Saul, who was king, acted like a priest by sacrificing without Samuel, God said that you're going to die now. Okay, it's forbidden by the law. But now God is saying, Joshua, take the crown of the king, and you are going to, not literally in your lifetime, but you're going to merge the king uh, priests together. And then he goes on and says, and I, this is a foreshadow of my branch. My branch. Now, everybody at this point already knows who the branch is because Isaiah chapter two, or sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter nine tells us that God will grow up a shoot or a branch out of the stump of David. And then all through Isaiah, God talks about his suffering servant, who is the branch, who will be the Messiah, the branch. Over and over again, the branch is referring to the Messiah. So by the time we get to Zechariah, everybody knows the branch is the Messiah. So it's foreshadowing the fact that Israel is going to be king and priest. Sorry, Jesus, scratch that, (coughs) Israel is not allowed to be that. Jesus is going to be king and priest, and he's going to be the two olive trees Of the Davidic line and the Aaronic Aaronic line coming together as king and priests, forming one group. Then we are told that we are in Christ, Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ. Romans tells us that we're grafted into the tree of Israel, Christ. And then we are told in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are a royal kingship, priesthood, because we are living stones being built in the cornerstone, the foundation stone of Jesus Christ, the living stone. So we are allowed to be king and priest simultaneously. We have the right to rule the earth, make creation look like God and command things, exercise demons and heal people and, and witness to people. But we also have the right to be priests the priesthood of believers. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is the ultimate olive tree, and we're all grafted into it. And now, not only king and priest, but he makes the point that Israel is an olive tree, and Gentiles are grafted in as well. Two olive trees have come together as king and priest, and the two olive trees have come together as Jews and Gentiles. And so this makes it very clear, who is the olive tree? It's those who are in Christ. And there's two olive trees. It's the Jews and the Gentiles we king and priest. The epistles make it very clear that the Jews and the Gentiles are the olive trees, and the olive trees are the kings and the, and the priests, and that we are both Jew and Gentile, no longer divided, and we are kings and priests, no longer divided anymore. And Paul makes that point very, very, very clear, and so does John. And so I believe that this is another metaphorical reference to the Jews and the Gentiles coming together, And that it basically refers to us. I believe that the two witnesses is the body of Christ throughout time. That just like numbers are all metaphorical in Revelation, so is the number two. And it means this, that Christians are going to all throughout time prophesy. We're going to speak the word of God. We're going to witness to people. And we're going to preach the gospel. And the world is going to hate us. And they're going to kill us. And one day they will kill them. But you can never kill the, the body of Christ. Every time you kill a believer, another one comes back up again. And in fact, when you kill believers, you tend to multiply them even faster. In the book of Acts, the believers are not spreading the gospel. And they're not growing very fast. But the minute we get Stephen being stoned in chapter 7, and then chapter 8 and 9, it just amplifies. Their numbers start scattering and spreading like wildfire. Okay. And we see that. And so God makes that very clear that it doesn't, I don't think the death and resurrection refers to two very specific people. I think the death and resurrection represents the fact that no matter how many believers you kill, there's going to be more like Elliot, um, Jim Elliot, right? Where he went over Ecuador, and what did they do the minute that he came along? They killed him. Right. And what did his wives do? They went back. And that time they were successful because they were so blown away by the love of these wives for them who had killed their husband. And the gospel spread like crazy despite the killing. And I think that's a a small example of you can kill them, but they will metaphorically be resurrected back into your presence again. And they'll still be there sharing the gospel and witnessing and testifying. And then one day we will literally be resurrected as the two olive trees grafted into Jesus Christ, kings and priests. And I think this is talking about the church throughout human history. And some of us are going to be trampled, and some of us are not going to be trampled. But if you trample us, we're going to be resurrected through the power of Jesus Christ. And the fire coming out of the mouth, fire always represents judgment. Where do you see fire coming out of something in the Bible? Daniel 7, when God comes on his throne, fire shoots out of his throne and judges the beast and judges the world. And I think the idea is for those who come against the body of Christ and try to kill them, there's a special judgment for you. Now, you can escape the judgment by faith and repentance. But if you don't repent and have faith, the fire of God is coming down on you. And I think this is just a metaphor for the fact that the believers are the two olive branches. And no matter how much you try to kill us, God will always multiply us in numbers, just like when the pharaoh tried to kill the jews they just kept multiplying even more and more greatly now could this refer to two very specific men of god one day in the future who will do amazing things maybe but i think there's been lots of great men and women of god throughout the history of the church that this can speak to in a lot of different ways and so ultimately god protects them then in verse 8, we're now told that the holy city is also the great city. Which means they're not the same. Because the great city refers to Jerusalem one time. But the vast majority of time in Revelation, the great city is Babylon. It's always Babylon. So that means even though we're in the holy city, and geographically it feels like the great is the same thing as the holy city, they're not. The holy city is the believers, and the great city is the non-believers. Which points even more strongly to the fact that we're not talking about a literal, specific city like Jerusalem. How can Jerusalem be both the great city and the holy city? Because it's not Jerusalem. It's metaphorical of the holy city, the people of God, and the great city, the people of the beasts, all living together in the same place. And one day God is going to separate the wheat from the ter, chaff. And that's the idea here. I think this is what it's referring. Then he says it's symbolically called Sodom in Egypt. These are two great judgments that God brought on. So if it's symbolically called Islam in Egypt, it's referring to that. Now it says this is the place that Christ is crucified. But it doesn't say the city. It could just mean the Roman Empire and its jurisdiction. It could mean the world of the Babylon and its jurisdiction. And we'll talk about Babylon when we get into the actual discussion of Babylon later in chapters in the Revelation. This is what I believe is representing that these two witnesses just represent the church, who are the two olive trees. And the holy city is the people of God, both Jew and Gentiles. The witnesses are both Jews and Gentiles, king and priest, And the great city is the nonbelievers. And God is going to allow the great city, the non-believers, to trample some Christians and martyrdom. And other Christians will not be trampled. But no matter how much they're trampled, God is going to keep multiplying less like crazy. And eventually, one day, we will be completely resurrected and taken to be God. And so I I just, I believe that fits better with the language of olive trees and lampstands. And Revelations also made it very clear to us that the lampstand is the believers. We saw that in the first several chapters, that he literally says the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the seven churches represent the whole of Christianity all together. And we know for a fact that those seven churches are not the churches of the end times, because they're all dead and gone. And they don't even exist anymore. So the lamb stand just refers to believers in general. The lamb stand just refers to believers in general. And so when you put those two things together, it kind of makes it clear here. So those are the two witnesses. In chapter nine, that was the end of the first six trumpets. I remember like with the first six seals, there was a pause, so to speak, and then we see an aside of the 144,000 being sealed in the great multitude for every tribe and nation language, as this is what is also happening simultaneously along with all these other events. And then that aside comes to an end, and we go to the seventh seal, and that brings an end to the seals. So likewise, we now dive into the seven trumpets. We hit the first six trumpets. There's a pause, and we get the aside, of the angel and the little scroll and then the two witnesses. That's in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has come, become the kingdom of our Lord. And of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders who are seated on the thrones before God threw themselves down and their faces to the ground, and they worship God. And with these words, we give you thanks, Lord God, all-powerful, the one who is and was because you have taken the great power and begun to reign. The nations were enraged, but your wrath has come, and the time has come for the dead to be judged. And the time has come to give your servants, the prophets, their reward, as well as to the saints and those who revere your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth, Then the temple of God in heaven was open and the Ark of the Covenant was visible within the temple and there were flashes of lightning and roaring crashes and thunder and earthquake and the great hailstone. And so this is the seventh trumpet wrapping it all up. It's also the third woe. We're never told that this is the third woe. But the fact that the third woe is never mentioned ever again in Revelation and the first two woes were the fifth and sixth trumpet, it makes sense that the seventh trumpet would be the third well. Why God doesn't ever name and label the third well, I have no idea. Uh, that's a question that everybody has regardless of what view they have. Um, and so, so this is the end of this, seven, this second set of seven judgments. And as a result of this, they begin to praise God. Now, notice what they're praising for. Remember, the first time we saw praises in heaven, they're praising Yahweh for being creator over all the earth. That was chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, they're praising Jesus, the Lamb, for being the atoner and purchasing people from every tribe and every language. Then in chapter 7, we saw them praising Jesus again, because now every tribe and every language is standing before the throne of God. 4 was God is creator. Five is Jesus has redeemed us from every language and tribe. Seven was now we're all there before the throne of God. And now he's praising God. The elders are praising God because Jesus is beginning to take the earth back and judge the evil in the world. He is dealing with the evil in the world. And that's what they're praising for. We see the Ark of the Covenant. I believe that this, this is the heavenly Ark of the Covenant, and I believe that it's symbolic of the people of God. And listen, I really firmly believe that we're never going to find the Ark of the Covenant. I could be wrong. I don't. I mean, I'm not going to die on this hill. This is like a very low opinion. I think when... I think somebody came and melted it down. Nobody saw it as holy. And, um, and I don't think we'll ever find it because we know what humans do when we find holy relics. Just look at the Catholic Church. And I know... We Protestants are different. But I think if we ever found the Ark of the Covenant, we would find that many Protestants are not different. I think that's way, that would be so big and so huge. I've seen what people, even the Protestant church, just do with a picture of Jesus in their church, let alone the actual Ark of the Covenant but I really firmly believe that we are the Ark of the Covenant. We are the Holy of Holies, we are the Temple. I think the Bible makes that very clear. And so if we are the body of Christ and we are the Ark of the Covenant, then this Ark of the Covenant is the believers in Heaven, and that's what we're seeing. This is the end of that.